This call is being recorded. Who shall save the human race? Who shall save the human race? 
What makes us take action towards our goals? It's motivation, right? If you're like most people, you only get stuff done when you feel an adequate amount of motivation to do so. But motivation is a slippery thing. It comes and it goes. On some days, you have no motivation whatsoever. But on other days, you have so much of it, you feel like you could take over the world. You don't know where that motivation came from. And in that moment, you probably don't even care. All you know is that anything you do that day feels extremely easy. But sadly, you can't know when the next time you wake up motivated will come. It's almost like a coin flip. Sometimes it lands on motivation, other times it lands on no motivation. So instead of waiting for the coin to flip correctly, I'll explain how to use the motivation sequence to motivate yourself. Sometimes your motivation comes out of nowhere, other times it comes from emotional inspiration. Emotional inspiration could be many things. It might be a fear of being judged by others. That's the reason you clean the house when someone is visiting. Or it could come from trying to impress someone or prove them wrong. You might see an Instagram post from your ex-girlfriend, which suddenly sparks that fire in you. You might want to make her regret dumping you. Or you might watch a motivational YouTube video and something clicks inside. You want to be that successful guy in the video. That's emotional inspiration. It gives you the motivation to get up and get stuff done. But you don't have to watch a motivational video every day to get motivated. Nearly everyone thinks that the sequence looks like this. Inspiration leads to motivation, which leads to action. A one-way, three-step process. But the next part is something not everyone knows. The sequence doesn't just end at action. It's not a linear sequence. It's actually a loop. Action isn't just the result of motivation. Action is also what causes motivation. Inspiration leads to motivation, which leads to action, which leads to inspiration, which leads to motivation, which in turn leads to more action. This means you don't always have to start with motivation to get things done. You can start wherever you want. Essentially, you can restructure the sequence in a slightly different way. You can start with action. Your actions will create emotional inspirations to further motivate you to take future action. This works because some things require next to zero inspiration to complete. Do you need to be inspired or motivated to brush your teeth, take a shower, or just change your clothes? Probably not. You just do those things. 
But whenever you do something like that, no matter how small of an action, you start to feel a little better about yourself, thus creating emotional inspiration and motivation. Then you want to utilize the inspiration and motivation from those smaller actions to do the things you really want to accomplish, like going to the gym or writing an essay. So the next time you're avoiding doing something you know you have to do, don't just wait around for motivation or inspiration to hit your head. That's what the majority of people do, and it's the reason why they don't get much done. They wait for something or someone to come around and motivate them before they take action. That is the wrong approach. If you wait for motivation first, you may never get started. Instead, just go do something. Do anything other than what you're doing right now. Take a walk around the block, stretch for a few minutes, clean your room a bit, take out the trash, do whatever. Then use the inspiration and motivation from that action to fuel further action. You can become your own source of motivation as action is always within reach. Remember, action leads to inspiration, which leads to motivation which in turn leads to more action. And that is the motivation sequence. Now, are you still unsure which action you could take to get your motivation going? Then I have a suggestion for you, and you don't even need to leave your computer. You should check out Skillshare. Skillshare is a learning platform with thousands of classes in pretty much every field. Want to learn more about business? Skillshare can help. Want to be more productive? Skillshare. Whichever skill you want to improve on, you can definitely find a class that teaches it. It's also super cheap, with an annual subscription being less than $10 per month. Basically, it costs 30 cents per day to get an unlimited access to this fountain of knowledge. But the best part is that if you sign up with the link below, you get two months of Skillshare for free. So yeah, there's basically no reason not to sign up. One of the classes I would recommend you check out is from my fellow YouTuber, Thomas Frank. He's a self-proclaimed productivity nerd, and he has an amazing class on, you guessed it, productivity. So if you're like me and you like to improve rapidly in different skills, you should definitely sign up for Skillshare and check out their classes. You can find the link below the video. So get started with Skillshare today so you can become better than yesterday. Freak, literally meaning France in Africa melded into one term, refers to France's powerful, inseparable synergy with its former empire in the African continent. It revolves around political and economic patronage, as well as military cooperation. For decades, the doctrine allowed the French to maintain their grip on Africa, affecting its former colonies to the nucleus, while being invisible to the naked eye. I'm your host, Shivan, and welcome to Caspian Report. Power doesn't corrupt. Rather, power inevitably attracts the corrupted. As African colonies declared political independence and broke away from their European overlords, the experience of French and British colonies were thoroughly different. Many of the British colonies gained independence through violence and thereby severed ties with London. Most of the French colonies, however, detached through non-violent ways, but retained deep-running links with Paris. More precise, British colonies gained independence through violence and thereby severed ties with London. 
Most of the French colonies, however, detached through non-violent ways, but retained deep running links with Paris. One more time. Colonies gained independence through violence and thereby severed ties with London. Most of the French colonies, however, detached through non-violent ways, but retained deep running links with Paris. More precisely, in the 1960s, just before conceding to the African demands for independence, French leaders of the day, most notably Charles de Gaulle, believed that to fulfill France's long-term geopolitical needs, they needed to preserve the privileged political energy and trade arrangement with the former French Empire. In other words, a system of cooperation and compliance was necessary to ensure France's grip on Africa. As such, the Gaulle's administration crafted the CFA franc monetary system, with the CFA being the French acronym for French colonies of Africa. The bargain gave the 14 newly independent French African colonies a stable and robust currency, but it also legally obliged them to put 50% of their foreign currency reserves into the French treasury, plus another 20% for financial liabilities. That means that the member states of the franc monetary zone only retained entry to 30% of their money, with the currency being printed under the supervision of the French National Bank. The settlement made sure that France's grip on Africa did not cease with the declaration of political independence. Even worse, if the 14 African states wanted to gain access to their own funds, they had to borrow it from the French at fixed commercial rates. This is what happened during the 2008 financial crash when the CFA franc members could not obtain credit because their reserves were held in the name of France. The situation ended with France extending credit to its former colonies by using their own wealth. Furthermore, immediately after creation, the CFA franc financial system was split into currencies. The West African CFA franc was designated to eight West African countries, Mali, Niger, Senegal, Togo, Benin, Burkina Faso, Guinea-Bissau, and the Ivory Coast. Meanwhile, the Central African CFA franc was assigned to the six Central African countries, Cameroon, Chad, Gabon, Equatorial Guinea, the Republic of Congo, and the Central African Republic. In truth, both currencies remained effectively interchangeable since they were guaranteed by the French Treasury. This arrangement, which has been the case since the 1960s, proved to be a significant boost for French banks and the state. But it deprived the African countries of their wealth and growth. The system of servitude was best captured by former French president Jacques Chirac, who said that we have to be honest and acknowledge that a big part of the money in our banks comes precisely from the exploitation of the African continent. In 2008, he went on to say, without Africa, France would slide down into the rank of a third world power. Lawmakers in Paris brand the CFA zone as a monetary union, but in practice, it is an exercise of neo-colonialism. As long as the former colonies are denied basic political institutions to manage their socio-economic base, their sovereignties and political will are hollow. Today, some 158 million people live in the CFA monetary zone. And since both franc currencies are pegged to the value of the euro, 
which has been the case since the introduction of the European currency, the local African governments cannot set their own interest rates and thereby devaluate their own currencies. This hurts growth because the economy of the CFA zone depends almost entirely on the export of unprocessed raw materials with low added value. The inability of the African countries to devaluate the currencies to gain better export prices has come at the expense of GDP growth. Since 1994, economic growth in the franc zone has hovered around 1.5%. Even by African standards, that is poor performance. Some analysts argue that the CFA zone offers low inflation and a stable exchange rate. Although valid to an extent, these advantages are leaning heavily in favor of Paris. Now, this is not to say that the French government is responsible for all the grievances in Africa, but for the African states, it's hard to grow when someone else controls the money supply, let alone the financial regulations, banking activities, and budgetary and economic policies. The franc monetary system breeds corruption, capital flight, and illegal activities. In such a climate, economic development is nearly impossible as is the creation of a political system that meets the needs of the majority of the citizens because the governing elite is preoccupied with repatriating wealth acquired legally or otherwise. The farce peaks whenever the French state sends public aid. What happens is that France uses Africa's wealth to extend a line of credit to its former colonies with the condition that the aid money is spent on French equipment, goods, or contracts with French firms. In January 2019, Italian Deputy Prime Minister Luigi Di Meo and leader of the populist Five Star Movement accused his French counterpart of manipulating the economies of the former French colonies in Africa. He blamed France for impoverishing Africa and thereby encouraging migration to Europe. Di Meo wasn't wrong. In 1994, the French government devaluated the CFA currencies by 50%. The idea was that it would improve the economic situation, but it did the opposite. The purchasing power of common citizens dropped sharply, unemployment skyrocketed, and the already fragile economies went bankrupt, leading to an accelerating migration of Africans towards developed countries. The legality of the French monetary system is dubious, but since the African nations cannot afford to file a legal case, the international community leaves it as it is. How much capital the African states lost since the implementation of the monetary system is unknown, but it has robbed the Africans of their wealth and prosperity. With France having nearly absolute control over the economies of its former African colonies, one can think of the CFA monetary zone as the French edition of the petrodollar. And as bad as all this sounds, it gets even worse. French multinational firms retain exclusive rights to purchase or reject any natural resources extracted from the soil of the former French colonies. Crude oil, natural gas, uranium, diamonds, gold, iron, etc. West and Central Africa is rich in raw materials and French firms such as Avera and Total have first pick. So only with the approval of Paris can the African nations sell their resources at international markets and French companies reserve the right to buy goods at the cheap since the Africans cannot devaluate their currencies. It's a foolproof trap.
The Franc Monetary Zone has given France a veto over the economic well-being of West and Central Africa. This unchecked neo-colonial policy could not have succeeded were it not for the African governing elites who rely on political, technical, military and economic support from France. Any leader that disobeys the will of France or tries to leave the franc monetary zone must deal with the consequent political, financial and military pressure. For instance, in January 1963, President Silvanus Olympio of Togo was assassinated three days before issuing a new currency. Other notable leaders include David Taco, Thomas Sankara, Maurice Yemego, Hubert Maga, Modibo Keita, all were assassinated or overthrown in coups as a result of their quest for monetary independence. Altogether, France has intervened militarily 40 times across Africa since the 1960s. Meanwhile, loyal African leaders were compensated with lavish lifestyles. In 1994, the Elf scandal revealed precisely how extensive the corrupt rabbit hole was. The oil company Elf offered bribes, mistresses, fine art, real estate, and so on to African politicians in order to secure their allegiance to France and maintain their exclusive rights to the local oil fields. The oil firm also lobbied French political parties to guarantee their support. This reprehensible arrangement explains France's long history of supporting undemocratic but loyal governments. For African dictators, France-Afrique was and still is a form of life insurance. Seen in this light, the doctrine enables the French to pull a lot of strings on the ground, giving lawmakers and businesses in Paris unilateral access to the raw materials in the area. But the world is changing. Since the end of the Cold War, France's hold in Africa has declined. Rising economic competition from China, the United States, and many other nations has plunged the French market share in the continent to historic lows. And with the passing of a new generation of Francophone African leaders, the African youth is increasingly looking for alternative patrons. Yet among all the former European colonial powers, France is unique in its refusal to decolonize. In this spirit, policymakers in Paris are drafting a new arrangement to manage their influence in Africa with the weapon of choice being the French language. But more on this in the next episode. I've been your host, Shirvan from Caspian Report. Special thanks to our top contributors on Patreon for making content like this possible. If you want to gain access to written reports or other perks, visit patreon.com slash Caspian Report. ...and that they're dealing with is the consequence of choice, if you follow me. <laughs> yeah, all of us, all of us. None of us are just these perfect beings walking around, you know, just, just making all of the great decisions and, and stuff like that. It's, it's not true. You know, everyone is uh, subject to weird decisions and, and the effects. So with the divinations, um, it, really, it really helps because at that point, you're looking at self. You're looking at what has been going on since your birth up until this very moment, you know, the people who have come into your life, the people who have, who have impacted your life, you know, how you've impacted others within the divinations, this is what is able to be seen.
Okay, so at that point, you're able to take responsibility for you. It's a very dynamic tool. It's a very, very dynamic tool. So, you know, I encourage people, you know, to look into this. I'll come back later on in videos and I'll show you little things which you could do to help empower your ancestors. Um, many of you have been following me or been watching my videos for years. You may hear things that are repetitive because um, there's a lot of new people here. So I have to create a bit of introduction, you know, for those who may not know. When it comes to spirituality, I try my darndest not to lecture people because ultimately we're not looking for people to follow anyone. You've already done that. Now it's time to birth leaders, people who can maintain their own shrines, people who do not have the dependency on others. You understand? There was a time where shrines were kept in each person's home. There was a, a shrine keeper, you know, a male within each family who was able to maintain these shrines on behalf of the family. Okay. So it's, it's it can't be like me. And then I'm taking care of the whole of, um, Luxor, <laughs> you know, that's just not fair to humanity. So I encourage people leveling up, becoming more responsible for their decisions, as well as the family members and empowering others. Okay. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of responsibility that goes into this. So, um, yeah. And, and I didn't, I didn't really go into exactly what your ancestors can do for you. So I'll share that briefly. Um, <laughs> man, they can help you rearrange your life. They're very powerful. Once empowered, they're very powerful. Once empowered. Okay. They can help you in your relationships. Okay, your ancestors can become empowered to go send forth information to other ancestors. Alliances are created to where whatever's going on in your life can be assisted or, or reevaluated or rearranged according to your liking if it is in agreement with the universe. They can help you with accumulating finances, a career, your education, anything you can think of, they can help you with minus your ignorances there are stages to this and it has to do with your development some people seek to you know they only want to develop their pockets they don't seek to develop themselves they always want to be the top of everything they want to they want to get the raises and they want to beat their competitors and stuff like that to each his own you know to each his own but ultimately your ancestors can help you okay so you guys thank you for watching looking forward to hearing from you and you all take care Depersonalization versus derealization. Have you ever felt detached from the world or felt like you don't belong in your own body when you look down at your hands? Depersonalization and derealization is a psychological disorder in which this experience is intense and prolonged. About 50% of the general population have come across at least one of these experiences in their lifetime, but only roughly 2% are actually diagnosed with the disorder. It occurs equally in men and women and can start as early as one's early or middle years. But the two terms, depersonalization and derealization, are often mixed up and misunderstood, even though they're often grouped together. So what's the difference? Depersonalization is when you feel cut off from yourself, when you feel like a robot or like you're not in control of your own movements. You're experiencing depersonalization. 
People with depersonalization disorder don't feel like themselves and struggle with feeling in tune with their emotions. These patients may feel like they're an outside observer of their own lives. They feel disconnected from their memories and may not remember them clearly. Most of the time, they have out-of-body experiences because they don't feel grounded in their own bodies. Symptoms of -of out-of-body experiences include hearing undefined sounds such as a train going by or soft murmurs and feeling like you're sinking into a bed while your body feels numb and out of control. Derealization is when you feel cut off from the world. Patients who experience symptoms of derealization feel as if they're in a dream or as if there's a glass wall or veil that's separating them from their surroundings. The world feels funny and distorted. Objects around them can feel and appear smaller or larger than they actually are. Surroundings may also be blurry or unusually clear. Sounds can seem louder and more overwhelming, and time can feel like it's slowing down or going too fast. The causes and treatment methods for both depersonalization and derealization are similar. Anxiety and depression are common in patients with depersonalization and derealization. They're often developed in people who have experienced severe stress in their lifetime, which includes, but not limited to, being emotionally abused or neglected during childhood, physical abuse, witnessing domestic violence, having a severely impaired or mentally ill parent, and having a loved one die unexpectedly. Symptoms of this disorder can also be triggered by severe stress from toxic relationships, financial concerns, and work. To get diagnosed for this disorder, one may get a doctor's evaluation, take questionnaires or tests, and undergo specifically structured interviews. A physical examination and urine tests are also done to make sure other mental health disorders, seizure disorders, and substance abuse are ruled out. This disorder is diagnosed when symptoms last for a long time or recur over time. It's important to note that getting brief and temporary episodes of these symptoms does not necessarily mean you have depersonalization or derealization. Instead, you may just be going through a highly stressful situation. To get treated for depersonalization and derealization, many patients undergo psychotherapy. Treatment of this disorder must address all stresses associated with an individual's triggers. This may help the patient become self-aware and give them the ability to take careful measures to prevent the next stressful episode in their life. Cognitive techniques can also be used to help block obsessive thinking about the unreal state of being, and grounding techniques can encourage the individual to use their five senses to feel more connected with themselves in the real world. Did you find these concepts interesting? What other psychological disorders would you like to learn more about? Please share your thoughts with us below. Also, don't forget to subscribe for more content from Psych2Go and check out our Patreon. Thanks for watching. All right. All right. All right. Welcome, welcome, welcome to another episode of Real Life, the radio show. I am your host, Jenna Kepra, alongside my partner, Brother Roz. And before we get this started, I would like to wish a very, very special birth anniversary to my middle daughter. Uh, she has officially become a teen today, uh, showed out at her soccer game, and had enough energy to aggravate her younger siblings after the game was over. So things are moving along quite well. Sorry for the uh, delay this evening. I had some other... Uh, I had some other things that I had to pertain to that was a little bit more important to me 
then getting right to the show. So for those of you that are that was upset or uh, I know it was one sister that called and she had to go. Uh, I apologize, but you know, some things come first. Uh, as we always do, uh, we have a few, we have a few articles that we wanted to get into that goes right in line with the uh, depersonalization versus the derealization as well. Uh, do you have those articles pulled up, Brother Ross? Excuse me. Excuse me. How are you doing this evening, Brother Ross? Hey, I'm good. It's uh, good to be doing this this program with you and the other callers and listeners. It's great. Um, still learning, as always. I've everything yes. with you, and um, and happy birthday <laughs> to your young lady. <laughs> that uh, is great to hear. Well, this is my third teenager. Uh, I'm working on two young adults, as well as <laughs> a, a stern. Man, I have a lot of children, so I have a lot of stages, <laughs> and I find myself going through uh, depersonalization and derealization on several different levels. But like she said, it's not always a, a mental issue, but I do find myself stepping outside of my own body uh, a lot with my children and sometimes with our global family that we have to deal with on a day-to-day basis as well. So, uh this this tonight's show is gonna be it's gonna be interesting. It's gonna be interesting. I agree. <laughs> I definitely think so. Um, there was one in particular because I was actually going through them right now, and there's one in particular that's a very very strange case that ties into the subject matter with tonight's program very well. But it's I think uh, quite unique case that um will bring i think further context to it i'm trying to see about uh the other cluster articles i had here if there's another one amongst them now do you remember any that you saw specifically uh well right now i I don't know how y'all having it up up north but i know down here in chattanooga man i am having some not necessarily technical issues but my lightning fast internet it's very slow this evening for some reason. Uh, I'm sure people will hear that. It sounds like it was skipping a little bit throughout the uh, clips. And that's because the the my internet is not, I'm, I'm not really sure. But, you know, we work through these things. We work through these things. So. Yes, we do and we will. And um, hopefully everything will improve as the, the program progresses. So this article is very interesting. It's from uh, Face to Face Africa, and it's um, it says I was in a white supremacist group, Suicide Squad star Adewale Akinoye Abaje opens up on growing up. So he's a brother. I remember him from um, from the Mummy. He played like the main uh, wicked black character in Egypt, chasing the main white character. But um yeah, so this is his story is very interesting. So it says um but hold on, Rob. Uh, go ahead. Just to give a, a a visual of this uh brother, this is one of the brothers from the wire as well. Uh isn't yeah. that correct? I think yeah. he did play a short stay there for a short time before I think they killed him off or something, but yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But I definitely know him from the mummy. 
Okay. Yeah. So this. Go ahead. My my apologies. I just wanted to give a visual for the people that uh, that don't know him by his name. Just so I would say he's able. crystal black, and in skin tone, he's very similar to Idris Elba, but it's not Idris Elba. He's another British African star. But anyway, so it says Adewale Akinoye Abaje has come a long way from Tilbury, Essex to Hollywood. To start, he was born to Nigerian parents in London, and second, he grew up with white adopted parents. Now, in a new biopic film, Akinoye Abaje is telling the world that about that time when he joined a group of white skinheads who taught him to hate his black skin. In Farming, which is the name of the documentary, I believe, Akinoye Abaje uh, directs an uncompromisingly true story of how he was bullied to the point of of convincing that he was inferior. As a result, he was encouraged to join the skinheads who were led by a white supremacist. The 52-year-old actor who wrote and directed the film explains that the point of the film was to use his testimony as a reminder of the damages white supremacy poses to all. White supremacy and nationalism may seem like topics in vogue these days, but farming is also a realization of a personal experience of alienation and neglect. When he was born in 1967 in Islington to a Nigerian couple who were in the UK to study, Akinoye Abaje was given to white parents who were given money to look after him. He was only six weeks old when he was handed to his white foster parents. The son reports that it was not uncommon for young Nigerian immigrants to pay for their children to be fostered in 1970s UK. He told parentage, excuse me, the the toil parentage took on these immigrants, many of whom were students, forced them to hand over their babies for care from others. But Akinoye Abaje, as a teen, did not understand this. He said in the interview with the son, quote, I felt my mom rejected me. I was only six weeks old when I was passed on. As a child, those white foster parents were my parents. Where the rejection came was living in a house of eight to nine children with rotating foster children, unquote. The actor struggled in his foster home. His foster mother, played in the film by Kate Beckinsale, once told him that that she did not love him and it was all business for her. At but at age eight, his parents came for him to Nigeria. To me, but at eight, his parents came for him to Nigeria. Unfortunately, he could not adjust to the culture and was even ridiculed as a foreigner because he could not speak the local language. Taking note of his unhappy time in West in the West African country, the actor's parents sent him back to his foster parents in the UK. It was this return that marked the dramatic turn to self-hate and white supremacy. The 1970s and early 80s were a time in British politics where race relations came to the fore. The white nationalist National Front was gaining momentum too, and where Akinoye Abaje lived, the skinheads ran, quote unquote, ran the town. He could not beat them, so he joined them. He wanted, I wanted to belong in a town where I was told I didn't belong. My father told me to stand up for myself. When I got proficient at, at that, it got me a certain reputation, unquote, explained the Suicide Squad star. His knack for dealing with issues in a heavy-handed and aggressive way appealed to the white skinheads. They needed his brawn. His parents learned of his violent turn in their teenage son's life, so they went for him to from his, went to get him from his foster parents, and he had to go to school in Surrey, where the actor recalls no one understood his Cockney accent. The tumultuous time of growing up affected him, and Akinoye Abaje considered suicide. Quote, it was the depths of my despair. I tried to put a noose around me. It didn't work, unquote, said the actor. With the help of social workers, he managed to get back on track. These days, apart from being a successful actor, Akinoye Abaje has two degrees, one a master's in law. And I think that, yep, that's the end of the article. So yeah. you're looking at, 
a crystal black man who, because of his life experience and, you know, just the transition to a, a foster home with white people um, who were mistreating him as well and told him that he wasn't loved. And basically it was all about the money because it, it, pretty much, I guess they must get a stipend from the government like foster parents do in the United States. And, um, you know, just uh, reaching the depths of despair and, you know, and it's interesting because it seemed like they had a system for these Nigerian children to be pretty much commandeered or being forced to be handed over um, due to the experience of their parents who could not care for them and actually be students at the same time. So, again, like when you look at white supremacy, that's why it's called the system, because it is a system and systems are run by groups of people, people who set up everything in their favor from all areas of people activity in order to facilitate an end, and that is domination of the people that they deem as others. So that this is, to me, a great example of the system, but then also the fact that um, it looks like he went through both deep depersonalization and derealization as well in the sense of just the idea for him to be a crystal black male that was running with skinheads and probably getting into physical altercations with other black people running with a bunch of white skinheads talking about white power. Hey, doesn't this remind you of the, uh, of the tale, the, uh, what is it? The lion and the hog? So, uh, yeah, the, um, the, the lion and the wild boars, it's a story that, yeah, (laughs) it's, it's actually the story that I, I utilized in the essay. I learned it from a teacher who passed away now. And um, basically it deals with a lion who's kidnapped by some wild boars in the savannah and they decide to kidnap him rather than kill him or attempt to hurt him because they're afraid that his parents will retaliate if they find out that he was harmed by the, they, he was harmed by the boars. So instead they took him in and they raised him into thinking he was a wild boar. So once they raised him into thinking he was a wild boar, he would eat grass like the wild boars. He would behave like them. And he was a great lookout because lions have a different type of vision than boars because they're prey animals. So their eyes are on the sides of their heads. Lions have binocular vision. Like all predators, their eyes face forward. And it gives you depth perception and allows you to understand distance between yourself and whatever it is you're trying to kill. So he would use that depth perception in order to spot lions whenever they would attack the um, the wild boars, and they'll be able to run into their hole and escape before the lions ever attack them. So this worked, you know, really well for a while, and they actually had discussions behind the lions back how great it is to be able to trick someone else into thinking they're you. And the leader of the group says, what you have to do is you have to put your fears, your 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 um your pain, everything that's negative about your life, you superimpose it on the one that you kidnapped. And then they'll start to believe they're you, and then they will also protect you. And they said, this is what man did to dogs. That is why dogs are called man's best friend, because we were able to fool dogs into thinking that we were the leaders of their packs. Dogs are pack animals, and they treat their human owners as the leader of the pack. So they're absolutely correct. And they said, this is what we did to this lion. So eventually, one time they go out, and they go out to eat you know, grass like they normally do. And the lion surprised them this time. So as they're running towards the hole, they're seeing all these lions coming at them, and now the, the cub is an adult. So they don't know which one is the cub and which one is a real lion. So they basically lock him out. So as he gets to, to the, um, the door of the, the cage, he's, you know, begging him to let me in. I'm, you know, he's terrified, but they're like, nah, dude, you're one of them lions. You can't trust you. What if you get in here and kill us? So we're like, nah, they locked him out. 
So then as the other lions start to approach the hole, he says, big, bad, evil lions, please don't eat me. And he starts shaking real bad. So the the leader of the lions, the male, looks at him and says, um, you know, you think that you're different from us? Like, are you serious? Like, you really um, are scared of us? Like, And then one of the other would say, yeah, he really is. He's shivering. And he said, um, do you think there's a difference between me and you? He said, look at yourself. I think the only difference is in your own mind. And the lion's sitting there terrified. They wouldn't let him in for nothing. So now he's stuck. So then um, he ends up he ends up saying to him, um, the ones who you thought were your family, the wild boars, didn't they lock you out? And they showed like the, they said that the boys were sniveling in their little hole. And, um, you know, then they, they just pretty much leave him dumbfounded, pondering what just happened there because he looks just like these lions. They thought he was one of them. <laughs> and he's defending the very quarry they were trying to hunt. But that is how powerful the psychological indoctrination of Stockholm syndrome, you superimpose yourself on the person who you're dominating and they become an extension of you. That's where uh, Minister Malcolm X got the whole master we sick scenario that he discussed. When a, slave, when a slave was in that state of mind, he wouldn't say, master, are you sick? He equated himself with the master too. So it's master we sick. It's two humans for the price of one psychologically. And that's what you saw with this brother um, dealing with this, this skinhead situation. For him to come from the background he came from, to actually see he's at a complete antithesis physically to the group that he's following, but then have such deep self-hatred because of his life experience that he was able to superimpose whiteness on himself, psychologically. And I would say that's also a form of, um, of um, body dysmorphia, because he's seen something that's not there. I'm pitch black, but I look in the mirror and I see a white supremacist, skinhead. That says a lot about the mind control. That's why I say this: the white supremacist system, white people are master psychologists, and that is where they have black people really, really in a, in a, in a bad place because when you're able to tap into the inner workings of the mind, then you don't need chains. You, just, you might need some physical abuse and, and, and death, sacrificial death of people in order to keep the buck-breaking system going. That's what you see when you see all those murders on, you know, camera and people filming black men being shot in the back, running from the police unarmed. It's a form of buck-breaking. It's all visual now. So you don't need an open slave system when you have people pretty much in a state of PTSD perpetually. And then you also murder them and abuse them for reacting like victims of PTSD. <laughs> so it's, it's, it's like you can't win for losing. Or as we say in Trinidad, six to one, half a dozen of the other. You can't do anything that will work. You just have to hope that your code allows you to survive the moment so you can go back and deal with the situation legally after surviving the moment itself. And you don't know if your code is going to be effective enough to stop somebody from killing you. So, you know, even that experience creates depersonalization and derealization. It, it's a stress. It's a high stressor. For children, it's, a, it's also the same thing. It's, it's high stressors that create those personality disorders where a child will create a subconscious adult to take over the abuse they're suffering, whether it's physical, sexual, emotional, and they might not fully understand the idea of like schizophrenia and per switching personalities and stuff, but that's where those things begin 
because the child is too young. They have no control over their lives. They're not fully developed as far as their brain. So they have to create their version of an adult. And you'll hear a lot of children say that, especially victims of sexual abuse. They'll say, hey, I created this this person, and they'll have, they'll have a name, and they'll actually act out what their version of an adult, let's say if it's a girl, an adult female is. That has been seen in those sorts of situations. So it's, it's interesting. But, um, you know, I think that this is something that's important because we have a lot of um, traumatic experiences collectively as a people, both within the context of family and in the context of going out in the world and just trying to make a way and trying not to be um, victimized, you know, within the next 24 hours. We may not think of life that way, but it's usually in our subconscious we carry that. That's where we carry those things. And once something happens in, in, in the real world, to realize that subconscious thought, that's when you go into the psychological reactions to the stimuli that you received in the form of that racist experience that you were subconsciously walking with the stress behind but didn't have something actually happen to facilitate the response. Now you do, so you facilitate the response. And it might be a response that is uh, pretty much a form of mental illness, and you have no control over that. You're an organism, you know, and living organisms respond to stimuli. And depending on how you respond to stimuli, you can either create mental illness or you can constructively deal with the situation. It might be traumatic, but you can work your way through it. It all depends on the person, and everybody's different. So I don't know what you wanted to say to that. I mean, Hopefully I didn't talk too much. Nah, nah, you, you always do. Uh, the only thing I would like to add to that is just uh, a song to kind of go along with your explanation of that. And it's, uh, it comes from the rapper Lupe Fiasco. Excuse my language. It's called Bitch Bad woman good and he breaks down that uh that psychological uh displacement that we have especially us here over in america as far as the men and the women the boys and the girls watching that knowing something's not right with our parents and coming up with an idea like you said of how a man or how a woman should be versus what they're seeing because sometimes you know we take on the characteristics of the negativity that we see from our parents and then sometimes we have this uh this euphoria that we create to get away from that negativity that we see from our mothers or our fathers so check that Mm -hmm. song out it's a it's a great breakdown of this same ideology but let's just go ahead on to the next uh because i want to actually get into these clips so uh let's get on to the next article Okay, let me see here. Um, uh, let me go to the other one. Give me one second. Let me switch over real quick. Well, while you're looking for that, I, I I had this other article that you had sent me, and this one is uh, go ahead. this comes from uh, curiosity dot com, and it is uh, it's personality traits that uh, make you a cyber criminal and this was very make you a victim of cyber crime yeah yeah uh, this personality trait could put you at risk of cyber cyber crime excuse me uh news research digs into the behaviors both oblivious and subtle that may put you at risk of falling victim to cyber crime involving trojan (laughs) viruses and malware people People who show signs of low self-control are the ones we found more susceptible to malware attacks, quote unquote. 
says Thomas Holt, professor of criminal justice at Michigan State University and lead author of the research. An individual's characteristics are critical in studying how cybercrime, excuse me, how cybercrime pre-service, particularly the person's impulsiveness and the activities that they engage in while online that have the greatest impact on their risk, quote unquote. You're your own worst enemy. Low self-control, Holtz explains, comes in many forms. This type of person shows signs of short-sightedness, uh, neglect, physical virus, I, I mean, excuse me, physical versus uh, verbal behavior, and an inability to delay gratification. Self-control is an idea that has been looked at heavily in criminology in terms of its connection to committing crimes, quote-unquote, Holt says. But we find the correlation between low self-control and victimization. People with this trait put themselves in situations where they are near others who are motivated to break the law. The research, which appears in Social Science Computer Review, accesses the self-control of nearly 6,000 survey participants, as well as their computers' behavior that could indicate malware and infection. To measure victimization, Holt and his team ask participants a series of questions about how they might react in certain situations. For computer behavior, they asked about their computer having slower processing, crashing, unexpected pop-ups, and the homepage changing on their web browser. The internet has omnipotent risk, Holt says. In the online space, there is constant opportunity for people with low self-control to get what they want, whether that is pirated movies or deals on customer goods. As Holt explains, hackers and cyber criminals know that people with low self-control are the ones who will be scorching the internet for what they want or think they want, which is how they often, excuse me, which is how they know what sites, files, and methods to attack. Understanding the psychological side of self-control and the types of people whose computers become infected with malware and who likely spreads it to others is critical in fighting cybercrime, Holt says. What people do online matters and the behavior factors at play are entirely related to risk. A new approach to security. Computer computer scientist Holt says approach malware prevention and education from the technical standpoint. They look for new software solutions to block infections or messages about the infections themselves. This is important, but it is also essential to address the psychological side of messaging to those with low self-control and impulsive behaviors. Excuse me. There are human aspects of cybercrime that we don't touch because we focus on the technical side of the fix, the technical side to fix it, he says. But we can understand the human side. We might find solutions that are more effective for policy and intervention. Looking ahead, Hope hopes to help break the silos between computer and social sciences to think holistically about fighting cybercrime. If we can identify risk factors, 
we can work in tandem with technical fields to develop strategies that then reduce the risk factors for infection, Hope says. It is pernicious. It's a pernicious issue we're facing. We're facing. So if we can attack from both fronts, we can pinpoint the risk factors and technical strategies to find solutions that improve protection for everyone. And that is, this comes from uh, Michigan State. Once again, the uh, website was curiosity.com and it was published in uh, Futurity under the Creative Commons license. Uh, we'll put that in the, uh, we'll put that in the, uh, in the article that we published the, the program in. This is a very interesting article. Hopefully I didn't read that too fast, but what is, what it, the gist of it is, is that when you have low self-control, which I have been a victim of that, I've spent, uh, I remember one time I spent like $3,000 trying to buy five uh, Mac computers with this same type of thing. It was such a great deal. I was in a hurt for money. I mean, I I know some people listen like how you was in a hurt for money with $3,000 spent, but that's a whole nother story unto itself. But that low self-control cost me that $3,000 trying to get those Mac computers thinking I'm finna turn those over and, is so this hit home with me too much. I wish I had a had an idea about this prior to going into these spaces because just sometimes knowing about things like this and and understanding how you're being targeted can help you make better decisions. I know it's a lot of people that may say you was a fool for believing that, and I'm not disagreeing with you. But, you know, some things, some things aren't uh, too good to be true. In this particular case, especially when we're dealing with online purchases, most of the time that it is. Uh, did you catch that article? And what did you think about that, Ross? I think because of the way the world is now, not the way it used to be, a lot of things, a lot of trouble that we get into especially dealing with technology really comes from the worst parts of our personality because the internet and and apps and cell phones and tablets are designed to addict you and addicted people act very idiosyncratically. And a lot of people aren't even consciously aware that they're addicted to their phone or, or their tablet or uh, multiple apps that they might deal with on a regular basis. They're not consciously aware of it. They're reactionary like an addict is. They get the dopamine rush from the interaction with the apps and the interaction with the device the same way an addict does. They just don't equate the physical device because it's not something they're not sniffing up their nose or they're not, you know, injecting or, you know, swallowing in the form of a pill. They can't see the addiction aspect of it. But because we live in a world where I've always said this, none of the alphabet boys have to go through any of the legal channels that they used to have to go to, go through to get information on somebody that they were following. Now you just go on their Instagram or their Facebook and they tell you everything for free. There's no need to get a warrant. So when you have that. Into this real quick. Sure. It was a small piece that I left out of that. Uh, 
out of that explanation when I was uh, kind of explaining my low self-control in that particular situation. The trick is, is that a lot of times before you get to that super built up price that you tend to lose, you tend to win. And what I mean by win is getting, getting a few items that you know you shouldn't get for that price. And they be spot on just to get you up to those large numbers. And that's what happened to me. And I just wanted to add that real quick. It's very interesting you said that because one of the clips I have for tonight that we didn't get to use is one that I think is called scarcity bias. And it was talking about how when people uh, are, when you go to a store, you'll see like a, a sale. And it's a really good sale, maybe, you know, 70% off of something that you really wanted that was really expensive. And they'll say, you know, you only have 24 hours to make this purchase. So you're under pressure that you got to get that money in 24 hours because after that, it's going to go back to its regular price. So you go through all this extra psychological pressure. You might even have to borrow the money to make sure that you get it within that 24-hour period. And then the store themselves will make mad money in that 25 period because they got hundreds, in some cases, thousands of people amped up with the, the dopamine rush and the adrenaline rush of having to get this money because this sale is only going to last for a short period of time and you have to buy it within this window. And then when that window passes, you realize that two months later, there's another sale either just like it or even better than it. And it's like, well, dang, they, you know, I went through all this craziness for nothing and I could actually save money if I waited an extra month. But it's that psychology. It's the psychology of knowing that human beings respond to pressure. It's almost like um, when you study uh, hunter-gatherers, right? They will stay in an area for a particular amount of time until they use up the resources in that area. And once they use up the resources, there's a certain level of subconscious stress that takes place that tells them there's no animals to hunt anymore, exhausted the um the fruits and other edible plants in the vicinity to get water is actually further away now let's just let us just pick up and go so it'll drive their movements and usually you have the elders that lead the group so they know all of the best places to go and they just pretty much make circuits throughout the forest stopping and starting stopping and starting as they use up resources in a given area so there's a there's just a a a a great form and it's very subconscious and it's a subtle stress that drives that motivation. The stress is having lack of easy access to resources. So um, when you look at the, the psychology of, um, of um, uh, scarcity ban, scarcity bias. Thank you for reminding me of scarcity bias. What it is is that it's giving you that same trigger that you would have if you were a hunter gatherer. I'm running low on resources. There's something that could actually solve my problem. And this store is only giving me a limited time frame with which I can get it for a price that I could actually afford it. Any other time and, and when they're charging the regular price, I will not be able to afford it. And that is a primitive response. We just don't know it is primitive. We know, only know it in the context of the store. We don't know it in the context of its real origin, which was that hunter-gatherer experience that is even alive in us today um, as we work on nine to five. Something as simple as that. So it's really when you get to know yourself, <laughs> you start to understand certain things. And what they do is they exploit those motivations 
on the Internet. It really, really exploits human psychology to the most incredible levels. Remember we played that video years ago where the guy, um, the, um, the, he was like a tech wizard who works with Google and he quit because he, he was trying to get them to make their, their apps less addictive and Google was not trying to hear that. And he was explaining how all of the, the he said there's only like maybe somewhere between 12 and 20 uh, programmers that create all the apps that people enjoy and stuff in Silicon Valley. And those people all were taught by this guy who was a master behavioral psychologist. And he taught them what's known as the algorithm of addiction. They were able to actually come up with the algorithm that hones in on human addiction and exploit it on, with everybody, pretty much. <laughs> and that is why you get such addictive um, games and addictive apps and all of these things have you locked down in this psychological bond like you just have to have it. It's for that reason. They're designed that way, and we don't see the addiction as the the device. Go ahead. No, I got a game, Apex. It, I, <laughs> they put that one together pretty good with the addiction. It's a, mm. you know, but you know, we all when we find these things out, uh, because it's it's more than just games, uh, it's more than just algorithms and all of that. But when we find out these things it doesn't mean that we necessarily have to stop using them. You know, that would be the best thing. Uh, I haven't, not yet. I've stopped a lot of things. Some I have not. Um, so I'm still a work in progress. Like I always say, I'm still learning. But I want to figure out. Them, when you finish, I'm sorry for interjecting. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, but after we figure out that this is how these things are, <clears throat> that this is how these things are being set up, we have to have enough self-discipline and just the forethought to be able to know that, that whatever we're engaging in is set up to be addictive and have us a cutoff point. You know, we, we have to be that responsible and it sounds simple in theory. Uh, sometimes it's very simple. It's just about what we want to do. And a lot of times, a lot of times we get into those things because of other situations, whether we have uh, stress triggers or what have you. And we, we get into it because we want to be distracted. So when we know these things, then it's easier to handle it because instead of getting into that game or going on a shopping spree online or, or using drugs or, or whatever the case may be, you know, it could be sexual. It could be intellectual. It's a lot of people that deal with their stress by uh binge reading. They may not even read anything worth reading. Just the fact that they have their attention stuck, you know, uh, in this book, whether it's fantasy, nonfiction, fiction, what have you. Just the just knowing that you're doing that because you have an addictive state. If we already know this, then we can start to focus on the actual problems and the symptoms that we're uh, that's sending us to those type of. Uh, environments but go ahead Ross. my my apologies my fault oh no problem man i think everything you said is is on point in regards to <laughs> the discussion so i i'm actually you know, have no problem with the interjection whatsoever i just had another article that kind of ties into the same thing and it's it's a little bit more sinister and it ties into what we had talked about with um with KT to arts degree when he talked about the rampage for um, Popeye's chicken when, mm. in that whole recent situation and um, this article is from CNN so it says this and I think Yours. it's gonna I think it's gonna yeah I think it's gonna 
dawn on people where it's going. China buzzed 35 restaurants for seasoning food with opium poppy. Now, for those who don't know, opium poppy is where they get uh, heroin and other opioid drugs and opiates from. That's the actual plant. And I know that it is known that the, the poppy plant itself can be addictive. Also, if you eat like poppy seed bagels, it will make you fail a drug test. <laughs> that is documented. So let me just say that before we start. So it says, and I'm going to catch something in the article. So CNN says, dozens of restaurants in China have been busted for serving noodles, um, hot pot, grilled fish, and fried chicken seasoned possibly with addictive opium poppies. The China Food and Drug Administration says in a statement this week that a total of 35 restaurants were under investigation and five of those had already been prosecuted. The regulator said poppy derivatives it detected included morphine and codeine and, me, and called on local authorities to step up their monitoring efforts. The, the additive has been banned since 2013. Cooks sprinkling powdered poppy on their dishes isn't uncommon in China, although it's unclear whether it can make a restaurant's food genuinely addictive. Listen to that closely. Cooks sprinkling powdered poppy on their dishes isn't uncommon in China, although it is unclear whether it can make a restaurant's food genuinely addictive. Now listen to the next sentence. In 2014, a noodle vendor was detained for 10 days after admitting adding powdered poppy plant to his dishes to keep customers coming back. Real quick. Mm-hmm. Man, uh, for those of you who have not seen the movie with T.I. called The Trap, this is a movie about uh, with with Mike Epps, T.I., and a few other uh, comics. And the, the uh, T.I. had a family restaurant, and Mike Epps, his cousin, dumped a whole pound of kush into the grease and that's what they was frying the chicken in had the whole uh it, they wasn't getting not one customer at first started cooking the chicken in the uh <laughs> started cooking the chicken uh <laughs> with the kush and then they couldn't they couldn't stop selling the chicken same thing but a little more addictive when you take the reefer and you change it into opioids yes and what I what I'm what I caught was that they said in the previous sentence that they're not sure, they're unclear if it can make a restaurant food addictive. And then in the very next sentence, they say that a noodle vendor was detained for ten days after admitting to adding powdered poppy plant to his dishes to keep customers coming back. Which means that he's personally seen that it's addictive. They're just not saying it. So they say it, they're not. It's not clear, but yet somebody who actually uses this stuff is like it keeps them coming back. So it says a lot to me, in my opinion. So it says, this case only came to light after police stopped the vehicle driven by a 26-year-old man and tested him for drugs not long after he had consumed a bowl of the noodles. Recently, China has been rocked by a number of stomach-churning food safety scandals, the most high-profile cases in 2014, when a supplier was found to have provided tainted meat to McDonald's and other restaurant chains. So that's why we talk about being careful when you eat at McDonald's. But Hold on a second, Ross. Uh, mm-hmm. We got a caller. Uh, okay, so I'm not looking at the board. Let me get over there now. Good John. Welcome back. Uh, we got a couple of more articles to get through, but how are you doing tonight? What's your name? Where you calling from? And what is your question or comment? Peace, peace, uh, gentlemen. Alex Little from Michigan. No, I was just going to also give my two cents in regards to the trap with T.I. on how the chicken was being laced with Kush unbeknownst to the vendors. 
And um, you said it before I can come through. So just on point with you gentlemen, and I'm going to sit back and listen. Thank you so much. All right. No worries. Thank you for calling back. Yeah, we definitely appreciate it. It's great to have you back, Mr. Alex. And um, so, yeah, like, so I was just going to say pretty much you're able to get people addicted to food if you use the right ingredients. And China's been known to do that before. That's what KP discussed very, very um, thoroughly in the video. He kind of discusses different cases with which this has been done. And um, like I said, you will fail a, a drug test if you eat a poppy seed bagel before you take that drug test or, co- or a few days prior to, you'll fail that drug test. And um, like they said in the article, they were able to find, uh, when they did the testing, they were finding morphine and, and, and different opiates in the food that they were testing. So if that is something that was being used in, let's say, the ingredients in Popeye's, then it makes sense that somebody's going to pull a gun on you because you ran out of chicken. Right. Now, how many people responding after that? Wouldn't that be an interesting survey to take up? How many people failed drug tests after? Uh, yeah, that would be. Yeah, enduring that Popeye sensation. That's that really interesting. interesting. <laughs> I, like I said, I don't know for sure if they use it in their ingredients, but when KT brought that out, I was like, "Wow, that makes a lot of sense." And I mean, they weaponized everything. There is not a thing that human beings consume or partake of that this system has not weaponized or allowed to be weaponized at some point. And that just was like uh, an epiphany. <laughs> just the whole idea that someone could cook food <laughs> with poppies and elicit the same response to someone who might, you know, smoke heroin, because usually most people start off smoking it before they graduate to shooting it. And that's when smoking it becomes least effective for them to get whatever buzz they're looking for. That's when they start shooting it instead. So, yeah, but um, edibles, though, edibles is a whole nother thing. We know that yeah. just uh, from marijuana. So it's not to mention that China has the uh, the rights to process all of our meats. Would that be a wonder why certain certain meats are purchased more than others? You know, I mean, now we're just going off of hypotheticals, but it just it just makes you think. Uh, but we we here it's about ten thirty. Let's. Uh, I I want to go back to this one article as far as the uh, the cyber the cyber crime real quick, just mm-hmm. to uh, give some uh, a little relief. We have this comes from uh, Laura Rakim. This is just a WordPress, but seven different uh, seven. Excuse me, I'm sorry. Let me read this correctly. Seven free bootable antivirus discs to clean malware from your PC. And I thought this would be, uh, for those of you that didn't know about this, I thought this would be very important. I'm glad you picked it up. I was thinking of the same article, so I'm glad you did. Go ahead. So uh, especially with us uh, discussing that previous article, like I said, that was Mm -hmm. interesting to me because that's something that I have had trouble with uh, over the course of my life. Well, I mean, it ain't happened a lot, but $3,000 on nothing is quite a bit to me. It happened some time ago, but I would never forget it. So let me go over these seven uh, over these seven antiviruses that you could boot up, which are free once again. Uh, the first one is uh, Casberry Rescue Disc. Kapersky. Uh, okay. You know what? You could pronounce these a lot better than me. Would you go through these, Rob? All right, no problem. Let me let me go and pull up the article real fast because I, I just saw it too. 
There we go. Seven three bulls and bulls. You need me to share my screen real quick, and you can just read them off of here. Um. Yeah, I'm actually pulling up the article right now. It's actually loading up. Because I'm ready. If you to want get... to share your screen? You can do that too. And I'll just read it off your screen. That's no problem. So go ahead and share the screen. Yeah, you can share the screen. I'm waiting for it to to populate. Still, it's, it's taking a second. So. All right. Well, let me just since I got it up. Oh, I got it. I got it. It just came up. So the first one is called Kaspersky Rescue Disc, and that is, I mean, Kaspersky Rescue Disc, and that's K-A-S-P-E-R-S-K-Y. That is um, his top choice. The second one is called Bit Defender Rescue CD. That is the second one that uh, Lord Rakim recommends, and I know he's uh, a techie, so he's into um, computers, and I believe he assists people with uh, dealing with viruses and Trojans and things of that nature, so he's actually compilers this and we greatly appreciate the brother. He has some good articles too. The third one is called Avira Rescue System and Avira spelled A-V-I-R-A Rescue System. The fourth disc is Trend Micro Rescue Disc. And he also has vid- videos that um, will walk you through how to use it on your computer as well. The fifth one is called Dr. Web Live Disc. I've used this one before. This one, the sixth one is called AVG Rescue. And the last one is called ESET System or ESET Sys Rescue Live, and that's E-S-E-T. The next word is S-Y-S-R-E-S-Q-U-E, and then live. So ESET Sys Rescue Live is the name of the seventh one. And um, these are the ones that you can use for free that are bootable that you can use to um, deal with any troublesome uh, viruses. Now, the thing about it is that whenever you, when you look at antivirus, there's only two companies you have access to that, McAfee or Norton. A lot of people don't know that both of those companies are Israeli companies. So you pretty much have six of one, half a dozen of the other. And a lot of the viruses that Norton can find and eliminate, um, you have ones that only McAfee can find and eliminate. So usually when you use one or the other, you're going to be susceptible to viruses that only the other program, or in most cases, the other program can catch it. So as a result, to have access to these bootable disks will help you with the deficiencies in the one that you choose to use, whether it's McAfee or um, or Norton. So that's a that's a something else that's one of the toss out there. But I'm yeah, glad that you brought, you brought this up. up. Uh, but before we continue on, because still got to get to these these yeah. clips. like I <laughs> I got notes. <laughs> no, me too, brother Scotty. Greetings, how are you doing this evening? Thank you for joining Please. us. Brother Scotty. I wonder if he has himself muted on yeah. the phone. Yeah, because he opened his mic up. Yeah, yeah well, right. I had my I had my uh phone muted. Oh, so I do about that too. Peace, my brother. Uh, greetings. greetings. Hey, greetings, everyone. Um, just real quick before y'all end the program, um, that anti the disorders y'all were talking about. What was what were they called again? One is called depersonalization, and the other one is called derealization. Now, the difference between the two is depersonalization is when a person feels cut off from themselves, like cut off from their bodies, like you're having an out-of-body experience or like your body itself isn't, you don't feel like an attachment to your to your physical person. And then derealization is when you feel detached from the world. So, like, if you look at the Unabomber, okay. he detached himself from the world. Yeah, yeah. Oh, go ahead. What, and what it, and it was talking about how both were brought on. 
it was talking about both were brought on by stress, right? So yeah. so that second one, man, I definitely suffered through that. Um it wasn't my divorce, my divorce that caused it. It was the custody battle. Man, I became wow. extremely depressed. My my ex wife was listening to her white white lawyer giving her bad advice and and trying to make it the proceedings nastier than they had to be and tell lies on me and then told her to violate you know my uh, visitation order you know until the uh, custody uh, case was settled man I I hadn't seen my children in over a year man. And wow. I, I mean, you talk, you're talking about feeling cut off from the world and what have you, man. It was like I was always walking around in a fog, man, of hurt and pain and, and not, you know, knowing where I was at yeah. all times. And, and I mean, it, it, I wouldn't wish that. Well, I ain't going to say that. I, I, I would wish that on Hillary Clinton. I hate that woman. But um, <laughs> anyway, the, the other thing. The other thing that Jenna was talking about, um, about the money and, and impulsive spending, was there a term that you used, Jenna? Oh, uh, or you were talking about? No, nah, it was just the uh, the article. It was called, uh, it was, it was low. Ugh, excuse me. Man, now I don't forget. Uh, I had a brain fart. My apologies. It was, uh. Man, hold on. Let me pull this back up because I don't, I don't misplace it in my head. Yeah, well, I, I kind of remember you were saying that you know you you were stressing for money, like we're all working class people, poor people are under those stresses because it takes money to live in a capitalistic um, um, society. And so you were talking about how you were going to take that three thousand and get those Mac computers, and I think you were going to flip them or something and yeah. make some extra money. And, okay, I, I man, I tell you, um, I have conquered that, and I'm I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, I was I was saying I was I was, I could explain it, but I was looking for the the exact words that he used in the article, and it was uh low self control. Okay, That's how they explained it, low self control, low impulse control. Now I I, I have gotten uh control of that but i almost slipped up recently if i could quickly share you know experience you know because i'm constantly under funding stress stress of not enough you know tax deductible donations coming into the black talk media project yeah i know it's important to a whole lot of people and i understand everybody don't have disposable income and what have you and people do what they can but because I made a decision that I won't seek grants from the usual suspects who will fund something as long as you go along with their program and you're not, you know, so much sticking to your own program. And so in me trying to find creative ways to bring in extra funding, I came across this guy on on a, a broadcast on Facebook Live, and he was talking about, uh, um, uh, man, what is it? Uh, we used to talk about it a lot. Uh, digital currencies, what cryptocurrencies and stuff like that, right? Yeah. And so, but, but this particular, so what this dude was selling, and and you know, Jenna, sometimes we just run into them salesmen. They got great pitches. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and so, um, you, you know, you can fall susceptible to people that's good at what they do. So anyway, 
he was talking about this cryptocurrency that was backed by gold, and you and, and you're also buying gold and what have you. And I was like, I was listening to his presentation. I went to the website, and I, I, I wasn't gonna spend no money, but I went on. It's like a multi-level marketing thing, you know. Right, he yeah. bring me in, and then any gold I buy or anything I buy, he get a percentage of it, and and what have you. For those that don't know how that work, multi-level marketing. So I was like, but yeah, the price of gold still, you know, can can rise and it can fall. So you can lose some money, but you can make some money. So I kind of felt like it might have been worth it and what have you. But then I started doing some research. Now, the company isn't a fraudulent company. They they are legitimate. It's a legitimately registered company that's based in Germany. And But what I found out was is that I can buy that same amount of gold that they char- – let me put it this way. Let's say an ounce of gold costs $100, Okay. And I can go, I can go to other websites and get it for a hundred, but they were selling it for a hundred and thirty. Right. So they were they were marking up marking up the gold, marking and value. then I was like, you know, because me and yeah, me and the dude was talking. And I was like, yeah, man, I could bring people. I got all these people coming to Black Talk Radio Network that's, you know, always looking for an investment opportunity. Gold is always a sound investment. And I was like, yeah, I can pull them in under me or under Black Talk Media Project because, you know, I signed up under him. I signed the company up under him. And so, I mean, the nonprofit under him. And so, but then... I started doing, I said, I said, let me research this a little bit more because this just sound too good to be true. And that's mm-hmm. when I found out that they was marking, marking up the gold, the gold 30% higher than what a person could buy off the general market. So, so I almost got, got on that impulse control thing, but I, I, I thankfully did my research. That's all I wanted to share. Hey, I'm glad you, you didn't get caught up, and I remember you talking about that, so I know exactly what you're talking about, and there's a lot of brothers and sisters that's in that particular program, and they push it really heavy, and I don't know if they're actually aware of it, because I think the average person doesn't, they'll say they research, but it's like, what is the quality of the research, and usually you find that people who are just everyday people who don't actually make that a part part of their way of life or they don't do it for a living, they don't really know how to research. They'll just do a quick Google search, you know, read over some rudimentary stuff and then make a a, a quick decision. And um, I'm pretty sure a lot of those, those black folks that are in it don't know that and probably haven't researched it. Or if they have, they don't care. They're just looking for, you know, the money they're going to make by getting people under them. So yes, it's it's interesting. That goes into character. And see, like, even the, the traps that he was, that they were talking about in the video is all based on your character, the flaws in yourself. That's why I always tell people your only competition should be yourself. How do you, you know, um, become the best you possible? How does the you of tomorrow supersede the you of today? What Not changes it. in you? Yeah, what changes are you making in the next 24 hours so that the person who wakes up tomorrow is better than the person who went to sleep last night. And a lot of us don't think that way. We just think about, you know, money because I mean, we're all programmed. I mean, this whole, this whole global system is pretty much a, a psychological enslavement system. And all of us are chasing dollars to go to 
you know, conveniences that were set up for us by people who have dominated us in every area of people activity. And we get caught up in the, the rat race of that. Um, that's why. Go ahead. Cause you just, you, that right there, we get caught up in dollars. That's one of the things I wanted to touch on with the, uh, mm-hmm. from the clip from, uh, how France maintains Africa. Uh, the number one thing is that our economics from Africa, as far as the, the countries that they colonize, they have to go through France first, whether France wants the, uh, the exports that they're trying to, uh, whether the France wants the, the goods that they're trying to export, whether they want them or not, they still have to go through France. And if France don't want them, France still has to okay it for them to go elsewhere. That's the first, that's the first thing. Uh, and I think this was my largest set of notes for all of the, uh, all of the things. And, and they mentioned 70%, you had 50% plus another 20% of all the African money has to go through France because they use that 70%. They have to use the, the, uh, the Frank when France doesn't even use the Frank, they use the Euro. They didn't mention that, but that's just something I throw out there for, uh, if you didn't know, uh, what does that have to do with the U S reparations? I wanted to talk about that part with, mm-hmm. cause that's, that was a big part of that. Uh, that was a big part of that. That, of course, it wasn't mentioned, but that's the correlation you have to have. The different things that's going on 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 this planet is coming to us, being practiced on everybody else first. Now, what exactly. do we mean reparations? Uh, how will Black Americans or a Ados or whatever uh, we will because we haven't deem what it's going to be but whatever it is that we're going to uh term ourselves those of us who are ados right uh how are we going to receive reparations because i know since i've been on black talk radio uh and prior to that we have been talking and discussing about the the constant devaluation of the u.s dollar so are we asking for them to give us U.S. dollars when the rest of the world don't even want that, like have you, have any, I haven't heard anybody I said the same thing that. years ago. I said yeah. the same thing. I said you're you're asking for the, the depreciating asset that is worth nothing, and they will give you those dollars because we know they don't, the, what you what you want to ask for. If you're asking for anything monetary, it would have to be gold and silver. Period. If it's not gold and silver, then you are wasting your time because in no time flat, and they're actually calling for the economic collapse that they've been predicting to hit before the end of this year. I say it's probably going to happen around election time. That's my opinion. I could be incorrect. And I think if that was to happen, that would keep Trump in office. So I think that they're timing it for that time frame so that he will be forced to stay in office regardless of what's going on. He's going to be like, screw y'all impeachment. The country needs a stable leader. I'm that leader. That's what's going to happen in my opinion. I could be incorrect, but, um, I, I said this before. I said a lot of Black Americans aren't thinking about the fact that the dollar. When I um, there was a a, a screenshot that I took of a of a uh, economic video, and in it it showed that uh, it said in 1913 the value of a dollar was the U.S. dollar was one dollar. In 2013, the value of a U.S. dollar was four cents. 
and it went from a dollar to five dollars to ten to twenty to fifty, and all of them were severely depreciated. I remember like a million dollars was worth like really worth forty two thousand some odd dollars and change. That is how far the the the, the value of the dollars depreciated. The overwhelming amount of dollar bills, U.S. dollar bills, are circulating around the world as we speak. Those debt notes, they, there's trillions of dollars circulating in other countries. And, they and as keep- those countries move away from the dollar, they're going to put all of that money on barges and ship it back to the United States. And what's going to happen is in order to get a, a, a pack of toilet tissue, you're going to need a trash bag full of dollar bills that are worthless, like you used to see in Russia in the 80s when, when Russia felt you know, collapsed and all of that, and you saw the long lines going around the block just to get a loaf of bread, and people had duffel bags and trash bags full of money because the we dollar wasn't worth anything. That's what you're going to see here. And people think it's not, ha- it's not possible, but it's going to happen. If you saw the situation with Venezuela and, and saw it build up, and we talked about that on Tando, on BTR News, on our program, for freaking years. <laughs> and it was exactly what was happening in Venezuela as well. It is coming here. And matter of fact, during that time, it was like two years ago, I dealt with the article on our program, and we also talked about it briefly on Tando, that was talking about the fact that with um, one ounce of silver, you could get six months worth of groceries. And with one ounce of gold, you could get land in a house in Venezuela. That was two years ago. And at that time, they said that people were taking zoo animals out of the zoo and killing them for food. They were hunting down dogs and wildlife in the surrounding area to eat. And then they were also crossing in mass into Colombia. And Colombia was pretty much accepting them because Colombia and Venezuela had a very close symbiotic relationship over the years where, they, where their people helped each other. So you had Colombians taking in Venezuelans for free to live in their house, bring their children, their family, and they were basically feeding them and, and allowing them a place to stay to live in some dignity and some decency. Hey, and they had to cross the border to do so. Long. Go ahead. That did not last long. No, it didn't last long. It was too many but, coming, and it was a lot yeah. of coming with uh with malice because they were- yeah. Yeah, because I know that they asked the dude in the in the documentary said how much is a hot dog. He was like four hundred and fifty dollars. Yeah. for a hot dog <laughs> and they were like yo this is the news guy he was like yo this is crazy and i mean like that's what's coming here and i'm like why do you think they're building that wall on the border it's not to keep the africans and the mexicans out it's to keep you in because america is going to be bought and sold it's going to be chopped up that's why i think they've had the greatest name for this country the untied states of america you're going to see um, states to see. You're going to see different countries occupy other states. It's going to be everything that they thought would have happened if Germany won the war. Now, remember two years ago uh, when we was discussing that, uh, who was it? It was Texas, uh, mm-hmm. Texas, and it was a couple of states uh, northwest that had already. Texas, I know California was one. Um, yeah, they I had... know Texas was the other. There's a couple more, but go ahead. So, you know, I don't know how many people actually know about that, but we was discussing that two years ago about the uh, few little states that was already uh, putting in to be seceding away from the uh, the union. So like this and, thing and- is already in, uh, it's already in play. In some places it might already be fin- finalized. I haven't looked into it as of recently, but all of this stuff is going on right up under our noses. And I don't appreciate you finishing my thoughts either. My bad. But I remember Dave talking about the fact that Texas is actually the only state that has its own grid set separate from the national grid. So if they were to like, you know, zap the, let's say Russia or China zap the grid, 
Texas could just shut theirs down and disconnect completely from the U.S. grid. They mm. also have oil. They have the lion's share of oil, so they can negotiate with other countries because they have assets they can get rid of. They have gold over there. Right. And, did they ever get their? Uh, did they ever get their gold <laughs> <laughs> from the United States that they were suing over? Because I never. I'm, I don't know. I never. I never got to follow yeah. up on that. That's something we should look into. Yeah. And then on top of that, Texas, the whole populace hold guns. So you're not just running up in Texas doing whatever you want, military or no military. And and anybody who know about Texans, they will shoot you. <laughs> they they just their culture is gun culture at the highest expression of gun culture. So it's not a state you just gonna run rough shot over and think it's going it's not gonna go down. They will shoot you and it's it's not just the white folks. You got a lot of different groups of people and they all about that work when it comes to that heavy metal. It's not a game. So there's things that are coming that I think um as this accelerates and stuff, it's gonna really put a lot of things that people certain people have been saying for years into proper perspective. But when it comes to reparations specifically, you have to have a plan as to what it is you are going to require as payment. And it should right. not be a dollar and it should be infrastructural changes and making um uh, American Africans specifically a protected class in which you can't just walk around wholesale killing people that are unarmed in the street and think there's not gonna be no repercussions. When you look at Jews, they are a protected class. Period. That's what that's what American Africans want. And and, and it's funny because the fact that immigrants are treated just like black Americans by law enforcement, by proxy, that'll help those people because you you know, the cops won't know who they mess with, so they'll be less apt to try something because they'll be like, We don't know if they're American or not. So either they're gonna ask you to speak and see if you have an accent and then shoot you forty one times. You know what I mean? Like things will have to shift. But there's yeah, certain things that you Go ahead, I'm sorry. No, I say these are real questions because they uh these are questions that have to be answered that uh I haven't heard anybody else asking. So Yeah. And I remember years ago I said that I said, What is it you're going to ask for? You know, on um, matter of fact, uh Goffey just had an interview with Vlad where they would say and he actually said, you know, uh Vlad just gave a blanket number just just throwing it out there. He was like, What if they they gave every African American family twenty five thousand dollars? or every person in the family, $25,000. He was like, that's nothing. It's not going to do anything. People, you know, when you have people who don't have anything and you give them a lump sum of money that they've never encountered or held in their hands before, they're going to go spendthrift crazy, which is, it's, it's a natural thing. And then when you take the cultural cultivation of black people towards splurging and wasting money and, you know, name brands and all of that stuff, then it, it makes sense I that that's so. what's going to, yeah, that's what's going to happen. You have to you have to actually, I think, put infrastructural changes, um, provide free education for everybody in their families. You know, um, even if they choose not to go to college, there should be a stipend for them. If they want to start their own business or take a, a trade in school, there should be a, a monetary stipend to put towards that end. Um, and something that is actually, um, how would I call it? It's um, It's something that coincides with the cost in the society. So in other words, let's say to get a trade costs $20,000, then exactly that amount they need to go get the trade should be immediately available for them to access to do it if they choose not to go to college. Now, that's, um, just, I think one, that, that's just one part of it. Let's make sure that is noted because... Yeah, it's, I mean, it's too much. It's, it's a vast subject. And that's not the only thing that, that Rise is saying. He's just giving it an example of right. one of the things that, that should be on the list. 
Right. It's, 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 there's, no, there's no way to really be comprehensive about it. That's what HR 40 is for. I'm just tossing out little suggestions right. um, just from, from my mind. I think people should be able to get all the help they need in tracing their family lineage. They should be should have access, free access to genetic testing if that's what they want of their choice. Recovery um, I, of land. Yep, I, I think they should get free passage to the country that their ancestors came from so they can learn about their culture, um, like all of that stuff. All of these things, I think, and more should be a part of that program. And then if there's anything monetary, I think there needs to be um, financial services classes where they're taught about real money and they're taught about, you know, investing and they're taught about all the things they need to know to actually go from being someone who doesn't know anything, might have low impulse control because they never had money, to someone who actually understands what best to do with their money to make sure it doesn't disappear. Like all of those things should be invested in, you know, I mean, there's, there's so much taken from, from, from American Africans. Like you have to try and give all of that back and then some. And that's right. a lot to do, but we have to have comprehensive, real thinkers that are going to have the best interests of the people collectively in mind. And that's the whole thing. In America, the, the, the way that we're cultivated is the, the, is the self above the many. African culture has always been a communal culture where the, the many supersede the individual. So that, those are the types of people that you need to have dealing with that issue, people who will take the entire community over the individual, but also create passageways for individual satisfaction as well as best they can but always looking at the collective um as the, the main objective make it make everything equitable for as many people as possible and that's what it should be about in my opinion i could be incorrect I but mean, that's, that's just my like, opinion like said, that's that's just part of it uh and right. we could go on and on more part of it you know uh, mm -hmm. but if don't um anybody that has any questions or comments you know uh We'll be getting out of here, uh, not right now, because I started a little late. We're going to run over. We've been running over the last month, it seemed like. But <laughs> yeah, so. we're going to run over a little late. So if you would like to uh, add something in onto that, be my guest. We welcome you uh, with open arms. All you have to do is open up your mic. Uh, that first video, Motivation, Action, Inspiration. That's something that uh this that's that's how this radio show got started. Uh I had I, I've always had a lot to say. Not to say that I that I know anything. That's not what I'm saying. But I've always had questions. And I and for whatever odd reason, I have some of the weirdest questions. But they answer my questions. I mean they they lead to answers to my questions and from time to time somebody else uh gets some type of productivity out of the questions that i ask and i was told one time that uh i was talking too much and they told me if i want if i want to uh, ask that many questions or tell somebody that the answer that they given wasn't correct then i needed to start my own and i didn't know how to go about doing that i, I had no idea i had no idea so Instead of trying to figure that idea out, I just started the show and figured I get the I get the answers as I went, and that started uh, about five and a half years ago, maybe a little bit longer. And look, and I wanted to end up I wanted to end up on Black Talk Radio Network from the j jump, and I remember Scotty was like, "Hey." <laughs> 
get you some practice first and we'll talk about it later. And here we go. So my actions, my actions uh, propelled my motivation, which, which compelled my, uh, my inspiration, excuse me, I should say my inspiration propelled my actions, which propelled my motivations. So that, that video, when it came on to let you know that it doesn't go a certain way, you know, like he was saying, sometimes you might need to just get up and do, uh, do a hundred pushups or attempt to do a hundred pushups. You might can't even finish all of them, but it gets you prepared to do something else afterwards. So that was, that's something that I think we all could live by. If it ain't nothing but get up and making your children do some push-ups. Like we was talking about, uh, whether we talking about buying stuff with the low self-control, impulsive buying, uh, it's a lot of us out there that have impulsive sex. I mean, it's, it's not just buying, uh, stuff online or stuff in person, you know, it goes to, uh, smoking drinking uh like i said sex uh intellect we get addicted to all type of stuff and this motivation is something that we tend to lack when we when we indulge in those when we indulge in those uh impulsive behaviors the reason i know this is because that is how i broke my own cycle that's not to say that that's the best way for you to do it these are just things that have helped me uh, evolve along the course of my life. Uh, I had one more short thing that I wanted to discuss and why are the ancestors important? Me growing now, up. Before you, before you do that, I just want to touch on something real quick. I want to talk about that too. When we're talking about um, just real quick, the, the one uh, with the France, um, the continued neo-colonization of Africa. One thing that they said that I think we need to really think about is that they said the British, the Portuguese, and Spanish colonies had violently resisted for independence so that they severed relations totally with their colonial masters. Whereas with the Francophone African countries, a lot of them had the non-violent approach. So the, the, um, that they were able to pretty much reimagine the colonial model. And actually what's happening today is over 90% of Frank's revenue comes from all the stuff, the money and, and riches they're stealing from Africa. So if those Francophone countries decided to no longer um, send their money over to Africa, I mean to France from Africa, their economy would collapse overnight because they're literally vampiring those countries. And that's where I say that, the illusion of independence is what you see when you see these leaders standing up there and, and smiling and skinning and grinning because they just let you know what's really happening. With the other countries, the, the British controlled countries and um, United States controlled countries and Portuguese, et cetera, they tend to have a different model. You have what's known as like the um, economic jackals and they'll come and they'll make them an offer they can't refuse. So the difference is they're not embedded politically in the country, whereas France reimagined, reimagined the colonial model politically. 
So they're held to a, a, a legal situation like they did with Haiti. That's what's happening in Africa with the Francophone um, countries on the continent. With the other ones, they have to do a different approach, which is usually like their CIA or version of the CIA will go and make the leaders an offer they can't refuse. And the same ends. I mean, if they don't kowtow or get involved in it, then they'll, you know, get rid of them or cause a coup or just kill them altogether. So it's the same threat. It's just two different approaches. So I just wanted to make that clear reference to that before you moved on. No, no uh, well, you know, I had I, I had discussed that where well, it was brief, but yeah, when I was talking about like you were saying, ninety percent of France's revenue, but it's taken away from that. Uh, but it's it's all coming from that seventy percent of the African mm-hmm. actual money that's going. It's that seventy percent of African money is what's providing that ninety percent. So it's it's uh yeah, I agree with you. Uh Haiti is a perfect example and they had a violent, but like you said, it's a uh it's a legal binding uh contract that they have, like, mm-hmm. like them paying reparations to France for uh for yep. you know, so yeah, it's I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. So you can move on to the the ancestor piece, and I'll chime in with you once you finish. I just I just wanted to add that one thing. Uh, it was just one thing I wanted to add add to that, and that's uh, whether you're a Christian, uh, practice Ar- African spirituality, or what have you. Whatever you practice, uh, the goal, and it says this in both cultures, is that there should be no middleman when you're trying to speak and deal with the Creator. And that's that's what she, that's what I got from what she was saying. Be your mm-hmm. you be the person to speak to the creator. And that that is by she was saying that was by way of uh speaking to the ancestors. Me and you was talking about this earlier today before uh well yesterday, because I've been busy yeah. obviously, but we was talking about that yesterday and 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 we both brought up the fact about casting lots, you know, and from a from a christian point of view i mean mm-hmm. and that will be the equivalent which we can't we don't find many of those uh type of christians around anymore so my whole point was just to, uh no one should be the middleman when you're trying to speak to the creator and that's the only point that i wanted to make no problem i would just say um when it comes to the ancestors the dead are not dead and like she said, when they are allowed, they can change your life. And that's the thing about ancestors. They don't intercede where they're not wanted. And the main thing is to never forget them, always acknowledge them. If you can, leave them offerings, burn candles for them, and they they actually get energy from those candles. And, and um, that's the purpose of burning candles. Um, the purpose of water is to keep them tempered and cool. Um, and that also has to do with keeping the atmosphere cool as far as the emotional and psycho-spiritual energy in your space. Um, she talked about having um, altars in every home. That is a fact. When you study um, traditional African history, you'll find that every family had their own ancestral shrine. And you, like she said, there's usually a male that is chosen to tend to that shrine on behalf of the whole family. So he's pretty much the main communicator with the ancestors, but everyone in the family at some point communicates with the ancestors but he's just the main conduit to the to the um the maintenance of the most explicit connection with them at all times via their interaction with that ancestral shrine or that ancestral altar 
Um, these are all things that people in the Western Hemisphere, specifically in North America, have actually lost a lot of that. Um, and it's something well, that... Well, hold on, Ross. Because as we discuss these things, I find a lot of these things, these same ideas, these mm-hmm. same ideas, these same cultures in the Baptist churches that I grew up in. Nice. Now, they may not be in the home, but they are in the church. Uh, right. Officers. That I must agree with. So it's the only difference is that in the, uh, from what I understand, which I don't understand much, but from what I do understand, the only difference that I have seen, especially with my deep roots in, uh, in the church is that a lot of, uh, from what I have learned from you and my own studies is that in, in African culture, you could go and you could do this on your own without any impedance from anyone. Mm-hmm. We, uh, for those who practice uh, Christianity growing up and still do practice, they have to go through a pastor or if you're, uh, if you're a uh, uh, Catholic, you know, they go through the, the popes and, and to the, uh, so they do the same things but they have someone telling them what to do when on the other side, you do it on your own, which in the Bible, it tells you to do that anyway. Yeah. Um, and when you, when you talked about casting lots, I just wanted people to understand casting lots is the Judeo Christian variation of an Oracle. So in other words, the Jewish, the Judeo-Christian tradition had an oracular system that was known as casting lots. And anytime they had any significant events or things that they had to do, whether it was going to war, um, dealing with a famine situation, they would um, have the high priest cast lots. And the difference between casting lots and, let's say, the Ifa oracle or the Kemetic oracle or even the I Ching of China is that the Israeli oracle only could give you a yes or no answer. So you would pretty much ask it a yes or no question, and it would give you a yes or no answer. With those other oracular systems, it gives you minute details about your entire existence from the time you were born, in some cases even before you were born, to the moment that you're getting that particular reading done. And things will be revealed to you through a person that you don't know that only you and the creator know. And that's how the ancestors let you know that the information is authentic and where it's coming from. You, you'll be told about things about your life and yourself that you never discuss with anybody else. And you'll be like, well, how did this person know that? And it's because that oracular system taps into that universal fabric that contains the life force of everybody. So depending on the person you go for a reading, you're going to learn things and discover things about yourself. They can talk to you about family lineage, depending on the reading. They can talk to you about admonitions from the ancestors, things you need to do in this lifetime. And as you follow those prescriptions that come through that oracle, you'll find that your life gets easier. And that the roads and your path to things that you need and want in life becomes easier. That's what usually happens for folks who do what they're told. When people don't do what they're told, usually they have a lot of obstacles and a lot of issues. And especially if it's something really, really important that you need to do if you neglect it, you can find your whole life derailed until you actually deal with what you need to deal with. So, and these are things that I'm telling you from experience and from people that I'm close to who have had very similar experiences or even crazier experiences, depending on 
whether or not they took the oracle serious when they went to get their readings done. So it's it's it's, it's an interesting aspect of our of our existence that has been maintained even in America. Like you you have <clears throat> different parts of the South where people still go to deal with spiritualists outside of the church. They might be Christian, they might go to the church, but they don't sever ties with those earth traditions and things like that. And you find that in every culture, it's just, it's just different in the way that it may be expressed amongst specific groups of people, but they usually have different names for it. And um, usually they, they, they coincide with or are utilized side by side with their Christian or Islamic tradition. They find that all over Africa too, where you'll have these Muslims in a particular area, but they still go to the spiritualists when they, whenever something's too, too much and the, the regular Islamic faith isn't addressing that issue, they go right to the to the traditional spiritual healers to get stuff done. If they have a health issue that needs attending to and the Islamic way don't work, they go right to their traditional healers for help. So these are things that always exist amongst, amongst people, but it's not something that, that a lot of people might come into contact with or hear about unless you're in the right circles or you come in contact with the right literature where people write books about these things and explain their life histories and their stories and the types of practices that they utilize and the actual things that happen to them from these spiritual practices. So it's interesting, but just understand that the dead are not dead and your closest relationship to the creator is facilitated through the people that are closest to you. And the people closest to you that are no longer here are your ancestors. They live the human existence. They know the trials and tribulations that come with wearing physical flesh. So they can literally, they become your lawyers in the world of the dead. They intercede on your behalf. They deal with the creator on your behalf. So the better the relationship you have with your ancestors, the better your relationship is automatically with the creator. That's just how it tends to work as far as just the way the African spiritual community views the relationship um and in a lot of the traditional religions you know you don't you go to the deities and the, and even the creator through your ancestors first you always deal with them first because like i said they're the closest thing to you and there's a lot of different uh spiritual rules and laws behind the scenes that go into the dynamics of the relationship but the idea is that the individual has more power than they think they do and that you're actually your own savior. <laughs> That's the, pretty much the concept. You save yourself based on the things you do to improve yourself and the lives of other people. That's, that's pretty much the, the gist of the spiritual practice is that, you know, you have to come here with a purpose and that purpose should be to leave the world in a better condition than what you, that, than the one that was given to you. And as long as you make that your life mission, <laughs> then you pretty much have a lot of good things in your, you know, put into your path to assist you on that. And, and it, you have things that'll throw you off too, but they're all to teach lessons. Life itself is an initiatic process. So the negative things that happen are initiatic things. How you respond to those things is what determines how far you, you, you know, you move along that path of self-development. Um, and also you have positive things that'll happen to you as well. So life is always going to be an ebb and flow in that regard. And you have to know, again, it goes back to character. What was your character when things didn't necessarily go your way? And how did you deal with those things? And then also, how did you deal with when things did go your way? Were you cocky? Were you arrogant about it? Or were you just appreciative and detached? All of those things play roles in the interrelationship between the ancestors, the creator, and how those things play out in the way your life expresses itself. So, yeah, that's what I'll say um, in regards to the, the ancestor video. I thought it was really 
really straightforward and um she gave some good rudimentary information on that. What you were gonna say? I wanna give people just so they could uh because I'm not telling anyone and which I have not since we've been doing the show, I don't try to uh convince nobody to do one other. Mm-hmm. I'm I'm just a person that's trying to figure out myself. I, I find things, I, I, I compare and contrast them. I, I'm starting to find a lot of things that's similar and I understand why a lot of people are leaving. I understand why a lot of people are staying. I'm, I'm just trying to figure out myself. And as I do that, I just share with y'all my thoughts. And, uh, but for those who would like to see that video, the name of that video is, uh, let me find this. It is called, uh, hold up. I just had it. I just lost it as well. Quick second. Sorry about that. The name Let me of the, see if I can find it too. The name of the video is uh, Why Your Ancestors Matters. And yeah. you can find that, uh, of course, on YouTube. Uh, we'll put that in the thread. Uh, the channel is called Ancestor Juice. <laughs> so just so people know. Yeah, Ancestor Juice. And then the, the title is the title you just said, Why the Ancestors Matter. So if nobody has any questions or comments or I mean, you could let us know what's going on in your neck of the woods as well. If you have something that you need to get off your chest, uh, it's very therapeutic, I promise. Uh, but if not, could you give up that, uh, Scotty, if you would, could you come on and uh, let everybody know how they could donate to the uh, Black Talk Media Project? And we'll get ready to head on up out of here. Please do. I think he, he might be muted again. You might mute just, yeah. might have muted yourself. Yeah, because his mic is open. Okay, he probably busy. So, uh, yeah. with that, brother Ross, uh, you could go. You could donate to Black Talk Media uh, Project by going to BlackTalkRadioNetwork.com and scrolling all the way down to hit the big black B. That's the uh, donate button, and anything helps. It helps us. It helps Brother Scotty to be able to keep uh, allowing us to broadcast and give out this information that we believe is important to everyone that looks like us. And soon I, me and brother Roz are in the works of getting our own donate button because we need help as well. Uh, it takes a lot of time and energy to uh, put these shows together and just that it takes a lot of time and energy and we also need some help as well but we hope this was uh constructive and i hope that everyone who comes across this uh podcast will find it constructive and we thank everyone who joined us tonight for joining us and we hope that it was helpful and gave you something to think about and hopefully something that you could pass along to your children and if you don't have any children, you could pass on to your friends, family, and the loved ones that you care about the most. Uh, with that being said, if you would give us your final thoughts, Brother Roz, and uh, hit us off with the prayer. Sure. Um, my final thoughts is uh, actually a piece of this book that, that I've been reading kind of regularly, but I think it just keeps bringing home. It's a great reminder of what we're trying to um, 
reclaim as a collective people. So this is it here. It's from um, Negroes and Other Essays by Umulimu Baruti. So it says, if European culture is insanity, then at the fundamental level of what humans define and perceive as reality, we as Africans and people of color have a very serious problem. If a cultural minority becomes the power majority, and this minority through military media and religious might force the majority cultures to adopt its culture as their own, then insanity becomes the norm and is redefined to sanity. Accepting another's reality as your reality makes their reality yours. If the insane can infense the same, that insanity is sanity, then the same majority become insane and insanity becomes universal and comes to be seen as sanity. Those individuals or groups who dare to hold on to their original sanity become universally depicted as the truly insane or backwards. Those who are carriers of the original insanity become universally depicted as the truly sane or modern. So that is what we're dealing with here of people who have projected and superimposed their reality on us. And like the line in the wild boar story that we talked about earlier today, they have trained us into thinking we are them. And we, as a result, function as an extension of them. And that is why you see a lot of the, the wicked idiosyncratic things that we do and the severe horrific abuse that we only seem to visit upon each other. When we take negative attention towards other groups, those groups invariably look like us. And we ignore the other groups that have played, in a lot of cases, a bigger role in certain aspects of our abuse and mistreatment. But we focus our energy on other people who look like us, whether they're from another country or whether they're from America itself. And that is us adopting the culture of insanity that came from the originally insane people. And we've lost our original sanity and have embraced insanity, and insanity is now the norm. What we're seeking to do is reclaim our original sanity so that we can get back to seeking justice and creating an equitable society for all of us to be able to thrive in and do the things we need to do and care for our loved ones and ourselves as best we can. So that is my final thought. I just wanted to make sure that I got that out the way before we got off. Um, any, go ahead, what you going to say? No, I think it was perfect because it's, it's, no. it's true. No, go ahead. Yeah, it is. I mean, we have to really think about that. And I think I think we should think about that on a regular basis because it is something that will give us um, a foundation with which to build. And then from there, we just have to be brave enough to be self-analytical, you know, and that self-analysis takes place when there's nobody in the room but you. you well, can, I add, anybody else. can I add one but, more thing to that? We also, we also have to be brave enough to correct uh, when we when we look at that and we analyze ourselves, we also have to be brave enough to correct those actions. Cannot leave that out at all. I absolutely agree. That is correct. Self improvement and as they say constant elevation, as we used to say in hip hop back in the day. That is what it's all about: striving for perfection at all times. You're striving for perfection, and um, if you make that your focus, then that means being the best you you can be. Like I said, the person who wakes up wakes up tomorrow should be better than the person that went to bed last night. And in what ways you're going to be better is something you have to ask yourself. So that's that self-introspection that I was talking about. So with that, I just want to thank everybody for spending this uh, Tuesday evening to eventually early Wednesday morning with us for the Tuesday night still. We greatly appreciate each and every one of you. We thank you for your time and attention. 
and hopefully uh, learn some some constructive or things of constructive value that you've been using in personal life. And um, you know, we're gonna say the prayer now and then close out. Creator, we ask that you help us to remain patient with other Black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us to remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of Black self-respect at all times and all places, each and every time that we are in contact with another Black person. It has been time to replace white supremacy with justice ASAP, and let's end the prison industrial complex and human trafficking as well. I am in the love of the all, and all love is in me. I am a part of the all, and the all is a part of me. I am one with the all, and the all is one with me. I can succeed as a part of the all and fail as an individual. I can be all that I wish in the all, as long as my wish is to stay in the all. I am never alone. The all is. I am. The all can. I can. The all does. I do. Once again, thank you. Thank you for spending your Tuesday evening with us. We greatly appreciate it. Stay out of hands of those slave catchers. If you drive a car, just buckle up every time you get in the car, and that's one less reason to be pulled over. Um, if you partake of intoxicants, stay where you are indoors until you sober up before you hit the street so they can't stop you from being intoxicated in public. Do everything you can to minimize contact in order to minimize conflict with slave catchers, with race soldiers, and most importantly, with other black people. One love, peace and love, Uhuru and Ubuntu, and good night to you all. Peace. Peace and love. Happy birthday, baby girl. Happy birthday. Oh.